turn to page 1033, 1033 of your Bibles. We're reading Luke chapter 6. I'll be reading verse 12 to 36 and Steve will be taking over from me. I just want to say just quickly that Steve and I have been here since um, Trinity Bay started and John and Geeta and your family, we're very grateful for your ministry, pastoral care and service, um, our whole families. Thank you. So verse 12. One of those days Jesus went out to the mountainside to pray and he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, who he also designated apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of disciples were there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people who all tried to touch him because the power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at the disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are fed well now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to the other side also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks of you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Yeah, so on a personal level, I just want to echo what Teague said, um, John and Geet. Um, we also greatly appreciate uh, the opportunity to read this morning. It's um, well and truly an honour. 
Um, I'll be taking us through to verse 49. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, It collapsed and its destruction was complete. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Tegan. If you don't have a Bible, you might want to grab one uh, because it's always good to check what the preacher is saying. Uh, Gita gave a great analogy of what today would be like earlier when we arrived. She said, I reckon it'll be a bit like our wedding day. You sort of get to the end and we just wonder what's happened. Um, which means we've been engaged for 11 years, so there you go. But uh, here we are, Uh, what a day. Uh, A word of explanation about this passage um, is that um, one of the things I've become increasingly convinced about is uh, God is like the perfect nutritionist, uh, that in the Bible, uh, everything is just in exactly the amount, all the nutrients are there to nourish us in life and our relationships. Uh, God ordained his word to come to us uh, in the whole canon of scripture, And so our habit is just to sort of preach consecutively through passages. So how did I pick today's passage? It was just the next one uh, to preach on in this this, uh, uh, series that we're doing, uh, Finding Life by Following Jesus. And uh, in God's kindness, it's an absolute um, beautiful passage of grace and instruction. Uh, So I don't know if you realise this, but at 9 o'clock, in the morning on the 3rd of April in the year that we know as AD 33, uh, a Jewish man called Jesus of Nazareth was put to death on a Roman cross. Now that event uh, changed the world. Uh, It was the singular most significant hinge in history. 
uh, it changed the world as person by person uh, had the message of the cross preached to them. Uh, and as they came to understand, they were overrun by the mercy of God. Uh, if you've ever tried reading all the four Gospels consecutively, uh, they all want to take you to Jesus' cross. Uh, they're just they're itching to get there. Indeed, they've been called passion narratives with extended introductions. At the end of Luke, fresh out of the tomb, the first thing Jesus does, he turns to his disciples and says, look guys, you've got to understand that everything that God has said up until me, everything he's promised, uh, it's all about these Easter events. It's all about my death, my suffering, uh, my rising, uh, and that the repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in my name to all the nations. Read through the New Testament. What do you find? All writers, every book wants to keep bringing you back to the cross. Uh, bringing scattered, scattered Christians, uh, struggling local churches back to Jesus Christ crucified. Not just as our pattern about how do we live as Christians, but actually it, it's where we find the power, the high octane um, divine uh, energy of God himself to be able to live the life uh, of goodness and glory that we've been saved to live. The Apostle Paul, his definition of a Christian is someone who has been crucified with Christ. That's what a Christian is. Um, is that ringing a bit? Is there anything I can do, mind, or is that... No, sorry, man, I just... Uh, um, and again, he says, a Christian is someone who has become... They're controlled by the love of God in Christ crucified. Um, and so as we come to the scripture again, this passage, life, the secret of life, of living life as a Christian, of understanding God, is all about understanding his cross. Uh, Luke records Jesus arriving um, as the most significant um, leadership challenge in history. We've had a few significant leadership challenges in our recent history here. Uh, there's one that's happened in the States that's caught everyone off guard that has the world holding their breath. Uh, but Jesus' arrival, um, Luke wants us to understand it, that it's a leadership challenge. and It's, it's, it's the biggest one that is going, it's going to change history forever. Uh, not just for Israel's leaders, but indeed... Um, for any, it's God's big leadership challenge uh, for us now, today. As Jesus makes plain at the end of his Sermon on the Mount that we just heard, his Sermon on the Plain, I should say, uh, Jesus reckons he's the leader we need to be, not just be listening to, but we need to be putting his word into practice. We need to be literally building our life, our relationships on his word day in, day out. If we want to be saved from the coming flood of God's judgment when Jesus returns. Dr. Luke, the historian and theologian, um, he, he, he tells us at the very beginning, I love Luke's gospel because he's just so upfront about why he's writing. He says, look, I'm writing to give any Christian anywhere confidence, certainty um, about Jesus uh, so that whatever is going on in life, you'll always be confident and certain and courageous to keep building your life on Jesus' word, um, uh, to, to keep doing that well. Uh, and so Jesus' arrival uh, back at the, at, at, in, in Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4 to 7 is, is like a unit. It's, it's what I call um, the ultimate Martin Luther moment. Some of you might know that this year, uh, some Christians around the world are celebrating. It's 500 years this year since Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the, the door of the castle at Wittenberg. Um, and... Uh, and it, Back, back in chapter 4, um, sort of in his own hometown, own home synagogue, 
he stands up there in verse 18 um, uh, using a scripture from the end of Isaiah, uh, applying to himself. He says, look, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Um, and it's like his manifesto. It's, he nails his colours there to the, the door. Um, and really from that moment, um, even people in his hometown, uh, you know, it's usual to give the preacher a hard time, a bit, bit of critique, but the preaching's always good. Um, these guys wanted to throw him off a cliff. Uh, so, so please don't do that with my last sermon today. But, um, and that's really been the reaction, the response to Jesus and his word ever since he opened his mouth and went public. Um, you get towards the end of chapter 4, um, he's demonstrating and revealing his authority uh, as the promised Messiah of God. Um, and, uh, and there's sick people coming from everywhere. And look, you know, Jesus, open, a, open your centre of ministry and healing here in our town. And, and what does he say at the end of the chapter? Well, he, he says, look, let me just remind you about how I understand my purpose, my mission about why the Father sent me. Because uh, what does he say? He says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. Now, this explains why Jesus' mission, it's not medical, okay? It's message-based. Always has been. This first unit, uh, chapters 4 to 7, we see Jesus saving and summoning sinners into his service as he teaches and proclaims the gospel. And all of the miracles are there just to reveal uh, his authority to do just that, that he is the Messiah promised from the Old Testament. And so the leadership change that Jesus has come into the world to affect in the lives of sinners, that means it's the only change that really matters. Uh, that We're going to listen to a lot of leaders in life, but this is the leader we must always be listening to every day. Luke 5, we've, uh, we've met some of the poor sinners that Jesus has come to seek and save and summon into his service. We've met them um, through the forgiveness of sins. He's demonstrated his divine authority to forgive sins. He's, he's, he's raised a paralytic to life. He's taught us uh, that the poor, the hungry, the blind, the, the prisoners, they're theologically loaded terms. We must define them using the Bible. Uh, the fact that Jesus commands a very rich um, tax collector to repentance, uh, Levi, who becomes Matthew, one of the apostles, teaches us that when Jesus says poor sinners, he's not talking about the materially poor. He's talking about people who are sick with sin. Whatever your station in life, your nobility, your bank balance, we're all sick with sin and we need to turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of our sin. And so it's Jesus' authority, his mercy to sinners that Israel's establishment is so violently reacting to. Um, the, the, if, if we're going to get this, this sermon on the plane right, you've got to understand the context here. Look at chapter 6, verse 11. Chapter 6, verse 11, uh, just before that reading. Uh, uh, so Jesus, it's, it's the Sabbath. You're not meant to do anything on the Sabbath according to these uh, leaders in Israel. Uh, Jesus heals a man who's got a withered hand because uh, he's come to save life, not destroy life. He's come to do good, not to do harm. Uh, and then what do we read? We read that the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, were furious, literally filled with fury. 
they began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. A couple of things. This is people reacting to Jesus. Reacting to Jesus with hostility and hate. He's only weeks into his ministry. Filled with fury. Um, uh, For the attentive reader, um, unfortunately this translation misses it. But um, Dr. Luke, he's already used this filled language a few times already. And the word filled is actually what's there in the text. You see, at Jesus' authoritative word back in chapter 5, exhausted professional fishermen who've turned up uh, at dawn with empty nets, he sends them back out, goes out uh, and says, throw your net. They obey his word and their nets are full, filled to overflowing. Um, and, and then Jesus summons them to follow him. He's going to make him into fishers of men. And then a man full of leprosy. He's overrun by the effects of sin in the world. He comes to Jesus and begs Jesus to make him whole. Uh, Jesus says uh, that he wills and he does. Um, and he makes the guy whole, uh, teaching us that only Jesus can overturn the effects of sin in this world. Uh, he hasn't And this guy goes off and he just can't shut up from talking about Jesus, from praising Jesus to other people. Um, And now, what have we got here? We've got Jewish religious leaders who ironically are the most educated. They know their Bible's the best, okay? Um, And how are they reacting to Jesus? They're full of fury, you see? Um, And that raises a question um, what of those who have already his disciples? Uh, because they've already, uh, these guys have already started to give them a hard time. So you've got anyone who's anyone in Israel who has the power to do harm, the power to hurt people, or worse, um, they're full of fury. And now you've got Jesus' disciples becoming filled with fear. Have they made a mistake? What have I done? I've, I've left everything to follow this guy. Um, this is not looking good. Um, you can feel their anxiety through, through the pages at this point. Um, I know we've got a few lads at, um, at Bible College struggling with Greek. There is a very cool little Greek word um, that Luke uses here. Uh, it's the word for mind, okay? Noia. It means mind. Um, it's the word anoia, which means literally... These guys are so full of fury because of Jesus, they can't think straight. They're out of their mind. They're irrational. And I'm sure we, we all know people who react to Christians and Jesus like that. They just, they just go off. As soon as you mention God or Jesus or stuff like that. Um, so by the end of chapter 6, we've got fury-filled leaders in positions of power to hurt and harm Jesus and his followers. And we've got Jesus' disciples who are filling up with fear, questioning their resolve and their allegiance. And so what the Sermon on the Plain is, is it's a pastoral word for his followers to give us confidence. Remember Luke's stated aim, it's to give people confidence in Jesus, confidence in Jesus' word, confidence to carry on even in the face of extreme opposition. Um, one of the young men I had the privilege of pastoring was called Ben. He was fresh out of police academy, um, freshly minted policeman, and he um, was working in a police station in Sydney. And he, he came to me one day and said, look, I'm in a spot of bother. Um, I was part of a, a group of policemen from this uh, 
this, this station uh, and we actually broke the law. We did something wrong. And I've been asked to sign a document saying this is how it went down. You see? Uh, he was the only one who refused to sign. Uh, and he knew it would be bad for his career. He was getting all sorts of hate speech and abuse. Um, uh, and it was only as he, uh, I guess, looked to Jesus and, and remembered his identity in Christ that allowed him to stand firm and to not sign and suffer the consequences. Uh, if you're going to live life as a Christian in this world, it's going to get hard. And at times it's going to get really horrible. Um, Jesus says we can have confidence uh, because of what we've got here. So cross-shaped confidence for Jesus learners. Verse 12, one of those days Jesus goes out to a mountainside to pray and he spends the night praying to God. So Jesus' reaction to to leaders full of fury and hate is to go and pray. Uh, Of course, Jesus praying to his Father, he reminds us that God is a personal God of relationship. The simplest way we express our utter dependence in him always is prayer. But Luke's showing us something else here, uh, why we can have confidence in the Bible to keep us going as Christians. You see, verse 13, when morning came, we, we read that Jesus called his disciples to him, chose 12 of them, then designated them apostles. Just quickly, uh, disciple, it's a word that occurs 36 times in Luke's gospel. And it's a word that literally means apprentice or I've called Jesus learner. You leave your old life, you become a follower of Jesus. The word follow or followed occurs 23 times. So you're like an apprentice, like like Chris down here. You don't just go and learn skills, but you're learning off a master craftsman. Um, the, the way they go about it, how they treat people, how to think and, and, and work through different situations. Um, so you're literally learning the life of the master. Um, you're observing their character, their behaviours. Uh, what does this person care about most? What gets them angry? Uh, what are their passions? And over time, their passions and they become your passions. You start to talk like them, maybe even imitate them. You learn life from them. That's what a disciple is in in Scripture. It's why Paul writes to Timothy, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You see, all Christians are disciples of Christ. Jesus calls all his disciples. We're all disciples. We're all Jesus learners. Okay? Uh, The task of all Christians then is to keep learning Jesus. Keep learning Christ for our lives, surely. Now, given that Jesus himself will sum up discipleship by saying we need to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus, logic suggests that Christian discipleship is learning Jesus' cross. It's all about the cross. All the disciples, but only some are chosen and designated to be 12 apostles, Jesus' apostles. He appoints a particular and specific group of 12 as his foundational leaders. Now, the significance of Jesus praying here. Luke's saying something pretty cool. You see, in the Old Testament, God's Old Testament people were founded on the 12 sons of Israel. Um, a couple out of Joseph, but, you know, 12 sons of, of Jacob of Israel. When Moses chose leaders for Israel, he went up Mount Sinai to pray. It came 
from the, and, and, and chose those, tw- uh, those leaders of Israel that all came from the 12 tribes of Israel. And now here is Jesus praying on a mountain and then appointing a specific and particular group of 12 of his disciples to be his apostles, his eyewitnesses, to witness him, literally, witness his life. Um, they've got his stamp of approval. It's a divine commission for a very unique and specific task that he gives these 12 leaders. What he's doing here is so provocative in response to the fury of Israel because he's literally um, saying, here's my new leaders that you've got to listen to. Stop listening to these guys. You've got to listen to these guys. Um, You can have confidence in their word. Uh, Stop listening to these guys over here. Um, And I think the application is pretty simple. It's time to stop listening to whatever other leaders or philosophers or whatever that we're trying to build our life on um, and really start building our life and on Jesus' word, listening to his word. And the way we do that, because of course Jesus isn't here with us today, is he? Jesus has died, he's raised, he's in heaven. Um, but then Acts begins with these 12 apostles, you see. Um, a, cu- a couple have replaced by Jesus. And so what you've got is the authority of their word, here in scripture and these are the eyewitnesses that Luke has researched and put an orderly account together and only Luke only Luke takes the particular care uh, to show us his historical method that um, we can go right back to ground zero um, about how these eyewitnesses were saved how they were called how they were appointed Uh, so you can actually see the line of transmission right from the very beginning from Jesus himself Uh, Luke's trying to show us why we can trust his word for our life, not just to save us, but to sustain us right to the very end. Uh, The 12 apostles are like a divine gospel safety deposit box under God's lock and key, irrevocable um, and untouchable uh, by the world. And it's, it's why we really can trust that the Bible is Jesus' word of authority to us. Um, You do the comparative religious thing. No other religion or philosophy offers us this sort of uh, historical method that's out there in the public marketplace. You can actually validate it. You can test it. Every other philosophy or religion, you've got to take on face value. There's no other way to prove what it is Muhammad heard in the cave. There's no other way to prove uh, the Bhagavad Gita's or, or these, these sayings, where they came from, who they came from, how they were put together. Look at any other relig- writing. There is no other way to authenticate their reliability and trustworthiness like you can the scriptures. Only the Christian faith is founded on reliable historical evidence. And of course, this is where, it's why we have the confidence to to teach the kids, the youth, to to preach, um, expounding this word together because we are literally wrestling with the very word of Jesus Christ himself. Uh, Luke records uh, Jesus' sermon on the plain beginning with a great multitude of people, not just from inside the borders of Israel, but from outside the borders of Israel, experiencing Jesus' power. All who come to him are healed. Uh, they're all healed. The little word all is used repeatedly in this section to simply teach us that the power and compassion of Jesus, he really does have the authority of God to save sinners, to forgive and to save sinners who will come to him. So the second section, cross-shaped clarity. 
for Jesus' learning. It's, it's clarity. Uh, we all know that one of life's big challenges in any relationship is to sort out your expectations early. Trying to work out how the other person's wide, what are their expectations of you, uh, th- 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 those sorts of things. Um, relationships, careers, all, it, they all get into sort of a, a bit of a, a pickle um, when we get our expectations wrong. So Jesus begins to outline some Christian family expectations for local churches or for Christians uh, who are fearful because of rising opposition or hostility or worse. And so what does he say? Uh, Blessed, 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 blessed. Woe, 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 woe. Four blessed, four woes. Now the key again is who's he speaking to? Well, we notice in verse 20, he looks at his disciples when he says blessed. Okay? Verse 22 uh, blessed because of your association with me, with Jesus, the Son of Man. Uh, blessed when you're hated, excluded, reviled, talked of as evil by Jesus, uh, by, by people, um, e.g. like these religious leaders, because you're associated with me. He's clearly talking to his disciples, to Christians. Having right expectations of God's favour, that not as material earthly blessings now, but the future blessing, the blessings that your sins are forgiven, uh, that you'll be raised with Jesus to eternal life. Um, It avoids our hopes being dashed. It avoids us running out of steam as Christians. You know, oh, cool, this is really great. You become a Christian and suddenly things get a bit tough and you fall away. Uh, Wrong expectations. Jesus says, you should expect that just what they did to me Uh, you're going to be hated and persecuted as my followers. I've already talked about who the poor, the captive, the hungry are, not the materially disadvantaged. Uh, Jesus is referring to people who um, are spiritually poor um, and they recognise that and their need for, for forgiveness. So then who are the woes directed to, verses 24 to 26? Well, um, Jesus finishes off saying that, look, If you're a Christian, you're in line with the true prophets of old. With the woes, uh, remember the context, the Jewish establishment is is in the process of rejecting Jesus, that we'll see them um, uh, putting Jesus on a cross via the Roman leadership. Uh, They may be popular, wealthy, well-fed, happy, but if they reject Jesus, they're just like the false prophets of old. And so Jesus' woes, they're not universal condemnation of people who have money, who have food, who are happy, or who have friends. Verse 24 makes it very clear that those who make accumulating their their present-day wealth, uh, that those who are most concerned about their own reputation and popularity and power... um, over self-denying discipleship. Well, Jesus simply says, you've received your reward now on earth. Uh, There will be no reward for you later when I return. In fact, you're in for the shock of your life. Uh, Now, I don't know about you, but I find that we live in in a world where uh, words like delayed gratification are swear words. Got to have it now. Um, The question Jesus asks his disciples in this middle section here, and those of us here this morning with ears to hear, and in fact, I don't know if you noticed, he asks the question twice, he says this twice in this sermon, what rewards are you living for? Are you living for the reward that is with your Father in heaven, or are you living 
for rewards in the here and now. Is your treasure with God in heaven or is it actually wrapped up in earthly pursuits and material pleasures? These are all good gifts from God. It's just a simple question about what are we living for? And a very simple point that Jesus is making here is that our present experience is not a reliable barometer for future blessing. If you're feeling blessed now in life, you know, life's going well and just, you know, career, all those sorts of things, that's not a barometer for how blessed you are in God's kingdom. And so a word here um, for the growing numbers of preachers and teachers uh, that are, are teaching a prosperity gospel to try to get people in through the doors. Uh, that God is all about earthly wealth and happiness and health and career uh, or financial success. In fact, you should expect this. You should expect this as a Christian. I want to suggest they are uh, not teaching about the Jesus of the New Testament. Just like those first disciples regularly experience hostility from the world, it continues for Jesus' disciples today. Uh, and look, it's more and more, isn't it? Comedians, legislators, media bosses, work colleagues, teachers, friends, uh, close family members at time. Um, I remember well the agony of, of sitting and talking and praying uh, with a Chinese university student um, who had become a Christian uh, a few months earlier. Uh, and her family had written to her and said, if you do not give up on being a Christian now, uh, you are dead to us. You're cut off from us. We disown you completely. And that brings us to that third point, cross-shaped convictions for Jesus' learners. The convictions or character, the family traits or values. Who is Jesus addressing? It's to you who hear, verse 27, to you who hear. When people hate you, exclude you, revile you, rubbish your name behind your back because you're a Christian, how should you respond? That's the question Jesus is answering here. So when you're trying to tell others about Jesus, uh, when you're going into schools or Christmas and Easter, and, and you've been given a hard time, how should we respond? Well, love is the word in this section. Verse 27, 32, 35, it keeps being repeated. Love your enemies. Um, it, and, and the point is that all the instructions that Jesus give here, they're imperatives. Uh, that is, you must love your enemies, uh, like in, in, in response. Um, and so we read passages like this, don't we? And we, where's the qualification? There's got to be a qualification here somewhere, except Jesus gives none. They're all commands. So without exception, no excuses, no exceptions. You must love your enemies. You must do good to those who hate you. You must bless those who curse you. You must pray for those who abuse you. You must offer the other cheek, that is, be willing to suffer the ultimate humiliation for my name because you're one of my disciples. If someone steals your jacket, don't hold on to your shirt as well. Um, and of course, at the cross, Jesus does have all his clothes taken from him. Give to everyone who begs from you. Uh, what love is this? Well, it's certainly not a human love, is it? Um, Jesus tells us what it's not. It's not like uh, the way people love. Uh, it's not calculating love, where you only love or do good to get something in return. It's not mercenary or mathematical love. Hey, look, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. Jesus repeated comparison with those who are not his people, sinners, in this passage. It really brings into sharp focus the logic 
of his teaching. And, and, and he's literally closing the last escape hatch here for us about how we are to love in response to God's mercy and grace. So verses 35 and 36, Jesus spells it out. Uh, what is to be the character of local churches? Uh, what is to be our motive as Christians as we respond to hate and hostility uh, around us? And of course it's cross-shaped, isn't it? It's cross-shaped. Verse 35 and 36, love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them, all in the imperative, all command words. Uh, then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High. Now, the, of course, the danger here is we can read this as, well, if I, I do all these good things, God will accept me. But that's not the logic here, is it? That is, you will show yourself to be children of the Most High. Now, look, if, if you get to know my uh, four amazing kids, um, you'll sort of think, oh, you know, it's like talking to Gita. You know, really? Just uh, generous, kind, thoughtful, you know, all those sorts of things. Because they're sort of, they're, they're, they're a chip off the Gita block um, uh, with all the good qualities they have. Uh, they get all the bad ones from me. But um, you're, um, that's really what he's saying here. Okay, that we are continually to show ourselves who is our God. Uh, and notice Jesus' logic. Because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. That is, God's mercy, his love, is never mercenary. It's never mathematical, never calculating. It's cross-shaped. It's full of mercy. Uh, we, you and I, we do not deserve God's forgiveness. We do not deserve for the Father to send his Son into the world to die for us. We, we do not deserve it. The only reason it's happened is because of God's mercy, because of who God is, you see. And so the challenge of these verses, of this whole section, is aimed particularly towards Jesus' disciples and their response to people who are hating them, opposing them, doing harm for them because they are Christian. And of course, you read through Acts, those early believers, they lost everything. Jesus challenges his followers to respond to this kind of hostility as children of their heavenly father by showing mercy. The mathematics of Jesus' cross, God's mercy on earth, it makes no sense to us. We pay nothing, God pays everything. And this is the amazing undeserving love and forgiveness that John Newton came to understand that we sang about uh, that I came to understand 25 years ago, that I know so many of you have come to understand. Um, it's alien. Uh, some of you know I grew up on a dairy farm, and uh, down there, I don't know what I was doing, playing with rocks, throwing them up and down, see if they come down outside the things. And my, my sister, uh, Jenny, who actually just left, unfortunately, she, she decided to go for a walk out in the, the paddock. And... Um, you see, all the cow manure for 100 cows, it has to go somewhere. And so I went under the drain into this paddock and this big lacuna, this lake of poo, okay? In summer, it would, it would crust off. And there is my sister out there walking over this lake of poo. And then she starts to sink. And she's in rubber boots. And if you know what happens when rubber boots fill up with liquid, you just, they're like anchors on your feet. Uh, and she's crying out. She just cannot move and she's sinking into this lake of poo. And there I am watching her. And, and so I do the brotherly thing. Dad, Dad! Oh, you like to Dad. Uh, you know, there's no way I am running out on that lake of poo to rescue my... I love my sister. There is no way I'm going there 
But in an instant, my dad jumps the rail when he sprints across or through this lake of poo and, and rips her out and comes back. And I'm looking at my sister and I'm thinking, man, I'm not giving you a hug. I'm glad you're saved, but I'm not giving you a hug. You know, and we see glimpses of mercy, don't we? You know, just love, the love of the Father, the mercy. And that is what uh, Jesus is. The Father sending his Son to running across the universe to save us from the muck of sin, the morass, the mess of this world. And so this mercy that's on view and that we'll see more clearly at Jesus' cross, of course, uh, it's not just a pattern of how to live as a Christian, the cross. It's the power, the power. Uh, if, if you don't have the power of God's mercy for your life, the forgiveness of your sins, if you have not been overrun by this mercy of your Father, uh, then it's like you sitting in the, in the best-looking sports car. You know, Phew, look at me. But you've got no engine. You're just not going anywhere. Um, it's all about the engine. It's all about the engine. Uh, and so it's, it's the power of God's mercy and love at the cross for us in our place. The Son propitiating the Father's wrath for you and I. That's why we've got to keep being a people of the cross, to love the cross. Uh, and so what I've loved about being part of this local church, it's, it's a family that doesn't keep score. I love that. Um, uh, and, and we shouldn't. There's no play, uh, place for pride or boasting among God's people. Uh, when we've done nothing to deserve being a part of God's people. And so as we just finish off with a couple of final thoughts, uh, one of my hopes and prayers is that um, uh, there might be a few strays here today who, you know, you've actually been holding out on me until my very last talk at the Bay, last sermon, before you're going to find, oh, okay, all right, yeah, I'll look into this Jesus person, you know, or maybe even you're ready uh, to actually... Uh, do a John Newton to become a Christian. I do hope and pray you would do that. But on a more personal note, uh, a few years ago, we did uh, a long series in the book of Romans and I came to see uh, the pastoral purpose of Paul in writing Romans, that he was writing because you've got this bunch of Christians, Jews and Gentiles, and there's disunity in the church. They've sort of said and done things to each other and that disunity is disrupting their witness. And for Paul, it was always about the gospel going out. And so he writes eight chapters laying out the gospel of grace to remind them and that in view of God's mercy, they might be a united people of God. They might forgive each other, humble themselves so that the gospel could go out um, better than what it currently was. And so... Um, when I read verses like this, uh, I'm so aware um, that just how I've struggled and failed to love like this over 11 years. Uh, and as a last act of kindness to me, I would, I would ask that if there are any here this morning uh, whom I've intentionally or unintentionally sinned against, Fine when I'm about to cry, I just think about the ice cream that's coming. Okay, it's, it's working, it's working, okay. But 
for any whom I've struggled to love as God has loved us, I just don't want any baggage to be left here. And so I ask that you might forgive me for that. Just as we finish off, um, if you want to hear the second half of this sermon, you've got to come back next week because Colin is preaching on that. Uh, But it does all tie together. The leadership fruitfulness in that whole next section is really all about, it, it matters deeply, it matters deeply about the leaders we are listening to which words we are building our life and our relationships on as God's people. Uh, And of course, finally, we come back where we started uh, with Luke's beautiful theology of the word of God, its trustworthiness. Uh, Here's where our confidence lies. Uh, Luke's sermon on the plain is literally God's building code for forgiven sinners. Our confidence is the sure foundation of the apostolic word of God that we've got here ourselves in the Bible. Our clarity and comfort is despite the heat, the opposition, the persecution that at times we will experience uh, as Christians in this world. We keep our eye on that future reward. We live for the future reward. Our treasure is with Christ in heaven. And we'll receive it in full when he returns. Our family character always is to be that of the mercy of the Father in heaven. I finish with this. When I was a, uh, just become a new Christian, been a Christian, I reckon, four months working at the Repad Hospital. Um, there's a guy came in, Bob, and not his real name, uh, and he came in to have the toenail of his big toe lifted off because he's a widow for many years, just found a new gal, as he said, and he was so excited. He was going out dancing five nights a week. Um, ballroom dancing, not, not the other kind. And, uh, but she wasn't that good. He said, look, he said, Doc, he said, you keep stepping on my toes. So, um, and so we, we took his nail off uh, and un, un, underneath his toenail was a melanoma. Really rare. It spread everywhere through his body uh, and he had weeks to live. And so sort of this excited man shrivel up uh, in his bed. The reason I share this is because in the news recently has been some, um, well, they're trying to get behind why it is 10 uh, people with leukaemia didn't get the right dose, okay, of chemotherapy. We've heard about that, some are dying. Um, Now, that's a tragedy. But let me tell you what the real tragedy was and one of the things God used to spur me into ministry. Um, I was ignorant as a new Christian so the chaplain comes to the hospital um, and of, of the brand of Christian that I belong to, stands at the end of this man's bed. And I'm in the room seeing one of the other patients and I hear him say, look, it, it's okay, mate. Everything will be fine. Now, I knew this guy was scared of dying and I knew he wasn't a Christian. But that was his gospel. He'll be okay, mate. And he left. 
I couldn't believe it. And that was my first foray um, or experience of liberalism and how toxic it is. And the sort of leadership revolution that Jesus came to bring and that was going on in his day. And it's continuing today. And so um, what I was convicted to do was to take my doctor's coat off during lunch and to just try and be a human being with this guy, sit with the guy, talk to him about dying and share the gospel with him. Now, of course, uh, some would say I should have studied medicine because I probably could have had a lot more gospel conversations with people uh, during my lunch hour. But it was more, I don't know what it was, you want to call it a righteous anger. Um, and friends, it's sad. But this, uh, this liberal gospel continues to be on the rise around us in the West. That with this prosperity gospel, you know, two big threats from within the church. And then, of course, we've got the rise of secular humanism. It's all about me, your rights, and the gradual tide of other religions uh, like Islam are on the rise. What will that mean for all us? Biblical Christians are going to be increasingly hammered, experience increasing hurt and hate as we try to stand up for Jesus and to hold out the word of the gospel, the only gospel that can save. And so that's my prayer. That's my prayer that um, we would take great confidence from continuing to read Luke's gospel, great confidence to stand on God's word, to live it, love it, and every opportunity to share it. Let me pray. Loving Father, thank you so much for your word, for this sermon on the plain, a word of comfort uh, to those of us uh, who want to be faithful to you, who want to be the best advertisement for you, our Father in heaven, that we can be. And we just know how weak we are, how imperfect we are in doing that. We can only do that in your strength, in the power of the love of the cross. Um, So please just help us to do that each day to keep denying ourselves, take up our cross and joyfully fill up in our flesh the sufferings of Christ as we hold out the gospel to people around us. Uh, Father, we, 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 we say this knowing your sure promise that whoever endures to the end will be saved. Amen. Peter's going to come and continue to pray for us last time.